I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light on Light Through, episode 262, my interview with Christine Feldman Barrett about her book, A Women's History of the Beatles. Let's get right to it. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I want to welcome all of our listeners to this very special episode of Light On, Light Through. And you may be also able to see it in video. If so, there'll be a link to the video on the Light On, Light Through podcast show notes for this episode. We have a very special guest, Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett, who is right now in beautiful Brisbane, Australia, as you can see by that background. Um, <laughs> the reason why we're talking is she last year wrote a book called A Woman's History of the Beatles. So let me start this conversation. Uh, the Beatles are obviously very, very much on everyone's mind because of Peter Jackson's masterpiece documentary, Get Back. Before then, for a few years on the Sirius XM Beatles channel. But the truth of the matter is, as everyone with a pulse knows, the <laughs> Beatles were never out of anyone's mind. And, uh, you know, my kids probably know almost as much as I do about the Beatles. And, uh, you know, I have two grandkids. My guess is they, in their turn, will know as much about them as I do also. So let's start with what got you to write this book, first of all, at this time, and second of all, in general? Okay, well, it was a little bit of a lengthy process. As you know, books don't just happen overnight. There's usually a period of research that goes into it. And I think when I first actually outlined the idea for the book, it was probably 2013, but I didn't start research on it until 2016. And the reason why I wanted to write a book of this kind was I felt that even though certainly there are memoirs that have been written by women within the Beatles story and memoirs of first-generation Beatles fans, I felt there wasn't a cultural history out there that really foregrounded women's experiences of the Beatles, whether in the 1960s or for people like myself who are in the second generation of fans or even women who are much younger than myself. So I really wanted to interview women from different generations and hear their stories, but also contextualize those interviews and and what these women were sharing with me in that greater context of Beatles history. You know, we can go back to Liverpool in 1960 and think about what was it like to be part of the Merseybeat music scene as a teenage girl or a young woman, and what were those interactions like in a very informal, familial kind of way in Liverpool as compared to women's experiences later on. So I really wanted to make sure that the history was there and that for people, whether they're very familiar with the Beatles story or, you know, have a general gist of the history, that it would be a book for everyone to really latch onto and try to see the Beatles story in a new way. So 
you know, that that was really the impetus. I felt like I wanted there to be something, at least one book out there that tried to, you know, in the best of my ability, try to represent a lot of different experiences that women have had of the Beatles, because as I said, I didn't feel there was something out there that really had done that yet. Okay. And one of the points that you made in the book, and you've made in several articles, which really struck me as a very important point, is that the Beatles, even in their lyrics and their songs, were always very much pro-women. I mean, there were some exceptions, you know, Lennon had run for your life, you know, he yes. murdered the girl who cheats on him or whatever. But by and large, if you compare the Beatles, say, to the Rolling Stones, where just about every time they talk about the woman, he, you know, Mick Jagger is going to do something to her or leave her, he can't stand her, not going to let her get away with anything. But the Beatles have this much warmer, welcoming attitude. So, I, you know, I, I know that as a, a scholar, you got very interested in this. But what I'm even more interested in is as a girl, when you were growing up and you first began listening to the Beatles, did you feel that and sense mm. that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I felt very welcomed into this sonic world that the Beatles were creating or that they had already created for me to listen to and for other people to enjoy. I, I did sense that warmth, that humanity, that feeling that everybody was welcome to what they were doing, whether you were a five or six year old girl like I was when I first heard the Beatles in the mid seventies, or, you know, when they first came on the scene, I can imagine, and of course I heard that from some of the women I interviewed, that they really felt the Beatles music was this kind of clarion call, you know, this, this, this call to them that they were feeling heralded by the Beatles to come join the party as it were. And I, I definitely felt that. And you have to remember that if I'm five or six years old listening to the Beatles, what other kinds of music am I listening to at the time that would make the Beatles fit in? Well, I'm listening to Disney records, you know, soundtracks of Disney films. I'm listening to the other pop music on the radio that's popular in the mid seventies. And the Beatles made sense to me, but they also showed me something different. I felt that they were opening the door into this new world that I could explore. So that was very exciting. I'm sure it was. Well, you might have also been listening to Rafi, right? Baby Beluga. He was like a great, but I, no, I, 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 I think like... that was I, that was a little later. I oh, think right. it wasn't around yeah. for me. <laughs> Which which song did you like better, Baby Beluga or Yellow Submarine, which is also about being under the water and the waves? Oh, well, Yellow Submarine. But again, mentioning the fact that I first listened to the Beatles when I was five years old, I was listening to all the Sesame Street songs, which I thought were fabulous at the time. You know, they were fun. They were poppy and, um, you know, had great melodies to latch on to. Yellow Submarine, I think, is still a very popular song with the new generation of Beatles fans, if you like. And there, yeah, I mean, I definitely liked that when I first heard it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's also one of the only songs that Ringo actually wrote to some extent. You know, he 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 gets credit for writing some of the instrumentals because they were all 
you know, just jamming together. But but Ringo seems to have had the idea for Yellow Submarine. Um, let's look at the individual Beatles a, a little bit. And um, one of the things that actually, you know, because I told you, I don't know how many people out there in the world know this. Uh, my very first publicly published article uh, and I'm saying this in contrast, like maybe something published in a school newspaper or whatever. It was published in the Village Voice in 1971. It was called The Vote for McCartney. And, and the story behind that is I actually wrote a letter to the Village Voice uh, complaining about a column that their music critic, uh, Robert Criscow, I don't know if you know him or have heard of him. He, he's like, in my view, he's like one of the most dyspeptic, you know, critics on the face of the earth. Uh, you know, he, he has, not, when he doesn't like somebody, he just goes to town on them. And what I thought was really unfair about Paul McCartney. Anyway, so I'm, this article is very important to me for a variety of reasons. I send a letter to the Village Voice. Two weeks later, I get a letter from them with a check saying, is it OK if we publish this letter as an article? Here's a check for $65. So I was thrilled. Uh, but in the article... And of course, in view of what happened to, to John Lennon later on, the horrible you know, tragedy of his you know, murder, I, I've always felt badly about this. I, I basically say, I, I don't know why everyone is saying that John Lennon singing a song like Give Peace a Chance, which basically has one line and then just a bunch of words strung together. It has an important message, but, mm. but, but you can't compare that musically to what Paul McCartney is doing on his own albums. And um, this in turn drew upon something that uh, my then girlfriend, Tina, who became my wife and was still married. And as I, you know, we have kids and grandkids. She always liked John Lennon uh, mm -hmm. more, more than Paul McCartney. And I always liked Paul McCartney more than John Lennon, although now, after all these years, I, I love them all equally. But how about you growing up and even maturing into the person who wrote this book? Mm -hmm. Did you as a woman have a favorite Beatle and why? Well, I've been asked this question before, and I think given the book that I've written, it's probably not fair to share that information <laughs> because I don't want to be accused of bias in my writing. But certainly I did have a favorite as a child, and he remains a bit of a favorite now. But like you, I would say there's so much to love in each personality of the Beatles. The, the way that each man in the band expressed himself as a person, I think one of the women I interviewed, I love how she described it being a first generation fan in the 60s, that she felt they re represented very distinct archetypes of this kind of new um, male, you know, this new figure of young men of that time, that they really epitomized these different ways that men could express themselves. And of course, we hear it through their different songs, the ways that the what we consider the John songs versus the Paul songs, how they come across and how their personalities seem infused into the way they deliver the lyrics, the lyrics themselves. 
And then looking at George's compositions, you know, what are they like? What do they say about George as well? What can we infer about his personality and so on? I think, as I said before, there's so much to love about each Beatle. And I think nowadays it's very hard for me to say that one Beatle is my favorite because each, each of their stories is so interesting just in and of themselves. And then, of course, the collective story of the Beatles is another thing. So, yeah, I, I'd rather not say, but I, I would say more so now as a... Um, a mature person versus a child interfacing with the Beatles phenomenon. I really do like all of them so much. And they're all such interesting characters to think about and to write about. No, I certainly agree. And this actually gets me into my next uh, question. And it's about, you know, what impact Peter Jackson's movie uh, has had upon you. And, and the reason why what we're talking about gets me to this question is, up until Peter Jackson's movie, although I liked Ringo, I mean, every time, you know, I thought about the Beatles, and I, I think I sent you a link to my review of, of the Rob Sheffield uh, book yes. where, you know, I make the point that I have nothing against Ringo, but I, I just don't think, you know, he was in the same category as making this incandescently brilliant contribution as, as the other three Beatles. But there was a, 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 a just a really brief sliver of a scene uh, in that documentary when, you know, the Beatles, the four of them are talking about, well, should we go up on the roof? Should, maybe not. I don't know. And Paul was being his like somewhat, you know, spilling cold water on it. We really want to do it. Da, da, da. And John wasn't saying anything one way or another. And George wasn't that happy. And Ringo just says, matter of factly, no, I think we should you know, do the mm -hmm. concert mm -hmm. and, and the other three Beatles immediately agree. And of course, yeah. it's such a, and, the, and in that instance, you can see how important Ringo was to the group. Mm -hmm. In many ways, he was like the soul of the group because all, all he had to say is let's do the concert and no one of the other three was going to speak out against what Ringo thought they should do. Right, right. I love that too. And Ringo does come across so well in Get Back. He comes, I'm, I mean, I think the stereotype anyway of Ringo as a Beatle is he's such a lovable personality, but you really see why there's so much truth in that to Ringo the man, Ringo the person and get back that you see he has a really strong connection. I mean, they all do obviously with each other, but you're right. I think nobody is going to refuse <laughs> what Ringo is offering or what he's saying because he's just so likable and lovable and they're willing to listen to him. Something that's interesting in terms of Ringo the drummer is that, and this connects to my book, although I didn't interview her for my book, there's a video circulating on YouTube of this young German girl who's a fantastic drummer, an amazing drummer, and she produced one video where she explains why she thinks Ringo is a fantastic drummer and the perfect drummer for the Beatles and why he should really be given more recognition. I'll send you the link to it later, but it's just fantastic because here's 
a younger woman, didn't grow up with the Beatles. She's probably 18 or 19, and she's making this very strong case for why we should all appreciate Ringo's drumming. I think yeah, it's fantastic. I, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to see that. One of the things about Peter Jackson's movie, which he's received uh, justifiable applause for, is that in addition to the visual imagery, the sound quality is mm -hmm. just spectacular. And, and that helps everything, including Ringo's drums. They sound so crisp and so powerful yeah. and you know, so perfectly in beat with what's going on he, he you can really hear him being the heartbeat of the mm -hmm. Beatles in that movie yeah. and to some extent one of the problems with appreciating Ringo is back in the 60s and I know a little about this from my own history as a recording artist it was just much more difficult to, to get that kind of sound on a drum. You know, you know they, the engineers did the best they could. The drum had its own mics and so on. But when it came to mixing it, it was usually the drum that suffered more obviously than the vocals or even, you know, the other mu musical instruments. So here Ringo was doing this fabulous job all along. And to some extent, it, it took Peter Jackson's movie just to hear him uh, in his to his full extent, so so mm -hmm. in that way, uh, Peter Peter Jackson uh, helped also. Uh, mm -hmm. um, by the way, what, you know, as you as I'm sure you know, there are what like 50 hours or more of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, what do you think there'll ever be like another nine hours? Somebody else will, you know, take a look at that and do a get back part two, or who knows what. Could be. I mean, I, I can't remember where I saw it, but the other day I thought I saw something circulating uh, in social media to do with Peter Jackson maybe adding more footage to the DVD release whenever that comes out. Uh, so I think maybe there will be some more that we get in that format, but I'd, it's hard to say. And I think people are so happy with the way that this series turned out, all three episodes, that I'm not sure that anybody wants to tinker around with that footage some more, but who knows? Never say never. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What well, other thing about, about the, uh, the, the almost, I guess, eight hours uh, movie? Um, one of my favorite parts of the movie, which obviously it all has to do with music, but this is verges into social commentary is of course when the police those two bobbies come on the scene and McCartney's reaction is just brilliant and priceless <laughs> right he, he's playing and he turns around and he's thrilled he goes whoo and he really starts moving I mean he's moving great throughout the whole performance but he really yeah. puts it on and that brings home to me you know the Beatles obviously came from a working class uh, environment in Liverpool and uh, as someone um and actually I don't know I didn't look into this did, did you get your degree in sociology or uh was it, it it, it was actually communication, but okay. I read so much sociology for my dissertation because I was looking really at a youth subculture that a lot of the liter literature that I read across was sociology, which is why I've ended up in sociology now. But my PhD is in communication from University of Pittsburgh. 
Yeah. All right. Well, congratulations. That's what my <laughs> PhD said also. Not from university. <laughs> you know, as everyone who has a degree in communication knows, it, it, that degree is always imperfectly understood by everybody mm -hmm. else in the academic world. They never quite get what we're studying. You know, they try right. to oh, that, that's like sort of English, right? Well, yeah, you know, we, we speak English, you know, as communication. <laughs> But yeah, but but to, to get back to this, you know, social dimension. So th so there you have the Beatles when the cops come on the scene, acting mm -hmm. as as almost like tough Liverpool kids. You know, they're not going to be in any way cowed by these Bobbies coming into their concert. In fact, they all loved it. And um, so it, it, when you were, you know, thinking about and actually writing your book, and, and obviously it's a sociological book because it's, still, it's a, a, a woman's guide to the Beatles. Uh, did you think uh, at all about you could actually write another book in which you look at the uh, almost the working class aspect dimension of the Beatles. Let me just say one other thing about that. Years ago, I was at a conference and I, uh, and I don't know, there was like a loud mouth, like another table. It wasn't during an actual presentation. It must've been in the cafeteria, but, and he was talking about how, you know, no matter what the capitalists say, nobody from the working class can ever get out of that mode. They're always going to be part of the grubby working class. They're going to be kept down by the establishment. And I said to this person, well, you know, what about the Beatles? And he said, no, you know, the Beatles, uh, you know, even Kings had court jesters. They're, they're not, they haven't really gotten out of the working class. And I thought at the time, well, an element of that, what that guy said was true because they did have a working class persona. Uh, mm -hmm. But at the same time, they did in many ways get beyond. I mean, if, if you think fame and impact on the world is important, they're more important than any billionaire or oligarch, to use a currently despised example yeah. of a billionaire. So uh, what's your thinking about the Beatles as in, in this uh, eternal working class struggle to get out of that mm -hmm. mold? Well, the way that I approach that aspect of writing my book is that there is a section where I talk about the fact that they served as such great cross-gender role models for women. They were affable, they were friendly, they came across as friendly, um, but also this notion that women could see the Beatles as rising above sort of the circumscribed position that they found themselves in. And of course, scholars now have revisited this question about whether each of the Beatles really came from working class backgrounds. And more recent writing about that has said, well, okay, John Lennon was a bit more middle class. Paul McCartney's family was kind of lower middle class, upper working class. And George and Ringo were more the working class Beatles, you know, out of the four. But the narrative absolutely is that they came out of this more provincial city in England that had a real working class ethos and therefore they did sort of rise above what their 
you know, predicted future outcomes may have been, right? They didn't end up taking on sort of your everyday working class or lower level white collar jobs. They did something absolutely out of the box. They did something phenomenal. And so, as I said before, in the book, I talk about that narrative, that story of the Beatles' success is really powerful for anyone who hears it at the time in 1964-65. But I make a special argument for the fact that young women who are thinking, what are my possibilities for the future besides, you know, getting married, having children, what other things can I do? And am I quote unquote allowed to aspire for certain things? And the Beatles, give everybody permission to aspire for all sorts of things. And the emphasis for me, of course, given the nature of the book, is that that is an especially powerful message for women in the mid-1960s, where it's only then you see a rise of young women deciding to go to university, for instance, or taking on careers that are full-time, not part-time. So. Yeah, I, I think it is embedded in my book, but certainly there's probably another scholar out there just waiting to write that book, you know, to focus more on the social class issue of the Beatles story. So you think then that the, the Beatles were, if not a major part, certainly a significant part of the women's revolution in the 1960s, which is still going on today. Obviously, it was an incomplete revolution, still mm. not finished. But yeah, and I, I, I think you're right. Well, as long as we're talking about women and revolutions, let, let's talk a little bit about Yoko. And let mm -hmm. me, uh, you know, start by saying I, I always thought it was, it was really unfair the uh, venom that was here mm -hmm. on Yoko for breaking up the Beatles. Again, Peter Jackson's movie, one of the other things it shows is how comfortable she's there laughing with Linda. You know, it's, it, she seems, you know, unlike the original Let It Be movie, she, mm -hmm. she doesn't seem to be, you know, someone who's not happy to be there and, and not really paying attention. And mm -hmm. uh, so, um, but, you know, on, on the other hand, uh, unfortunately, anyone who was a partner of any of the Beatles, and this not only applied to Yoko, it applied to Linda. Uh, for some mm -hmm. reason, Patty Boyd didn't get this uh, attitude, mm -hmm. and Maureen didn't. But certainly, Linda and Yoko, the, the Beatles broke up, and somehow it was the fault mm -hmm. you know, of, of their wives or, or their girlfriends. Um, but one of the things, honestly, although, uh, you know, I always admired Yoko as a, a person and, and still do. And again, this gets back to me you know, in terms of my, you know, being a recording artist myself to some minor extent. You know, you sometimes hear Yoko's voice and all she's really doing is screeching, you know, in, in the background. And, uh, you know, I've heard some you know, people who otherwise actually love the Beatles and, and don't um, take this nonsense view that Yoko was responsible for them breaking mm -hmm. up, but nonetheless say that maybe it would have been 
better for Yoko if she had, I mean, there's nothing wrong with going in and recording and sounding like what you sound like, but mm -hmm. independent of John Lennon, would anyone have really listened to Yoko singing? Maybe she, maybe as a poet, and she is a successful poet, she's certainly very good with words. So what's your thinking uh, uh, on that? I, well, I'll just say one other thing. Sure. Notwithstanding all of that, one of my favorite Beatles, uh, two of my favorite Beatles songs for different reasons are the Ballad of John and Yoko. And it, it, it's so good hearing John and Paul just do that. It's fabulous. And, I, and it's one of the last, if it may indeed have been the last song that they recorded. And also uh, every time I hear John sing, you know, Oh Yoko, it, it brings mm -hmm. tears to my eyes. It's such a beautiful, heartbreaking song in terms of mm -hmm. what happened. So, but what, what is your thinking about that? I mean, do you give Yoko a completely, in effect, blank check? She, she, she did whatever she wanted. And if you don't like her singing too bad for you or what? Well, I have a couple of things to say about this. I mean, first, for instance, in Get Back, the kind of singing that you're seeing her do is what is expected of her I think by a lot of Beatles fans that that's the only kind of singing she does but I would encourage people who have that notion of Yoko only producing those kinds of songs to listen to something like Run 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 from the 1973 album Feeling the Space she is singing beautifully in that song I mean she has very much a soprano voice so I guess it also depends what kind of women's voices you gravitate towards. You know, um, Carol King and Joni Mitchell are loved by so many people, but I know some people who don't like the sounds of their voices either. And, it, and so I think it's, um, it's just personal taste in terms of what kinds of voices you like. And for instance, a lot of people who became Beatles fans in the punk era, sort of, you know, mid to late 70s and later, absolutely adore the experimental nature of what Yoko's doing in the studio, whether it is more the performance arty screaming kind of sounds or the songs that are really quite different that are true rock songs, you know, or pop songs. And I would say that, for instance, people who really like listening to Kate Bush or the B-52s or uh, Lena Lovitch, uh, Nina Hagen, you know, all those sort of punk singers or sort of post-punk new wave singers that came out in the 70s and 80s, they're going to like Yoko Ono's voice, you know? So I think there might be something to do with a generational difference because people who um, were, say, in their 20s in the 1960s, maybe they didn't get into punk and they didn't like those sounds, they wouldn't like what Yoko's doing either, you know? Whereas the punk generation and my generation, sort of the Gen X kids, you know, there's still some of us who don't like Yoko's singing voice, but there are many who do. So uh, there are a lot of different things going on there, but I would really urge people who think that Yoko only sounds in one particular way or she only sings in one particular style to investigate some of her solo work from say the mid seventies. It's really quite uh, varied in terms of what she's offering her audience. That, that's a great answer. So in other words, we, you, 
Yoko maybe should be appreciated as proto-punk. You know, <laughs> a few years before punk became so important, that's she was drawing on that same sort of resonance in in music. Uh, that that's 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 a very uh, very good answer. Um, by the way, I mean, you know, my taste. Uh, you know, I'm so pathetic. I even like some stuff from the 1950s. You know, that's oh, that's good stuff. Yeah, that's I know. Stuff you? Yeah. yeah, but I do like some punkish stuff. I mean, I like Blondie. Is Blondie mm. punk to some extent? Yeah, not a, yeah, not, new wave yeah. punk. And yeah. I wanted to tell you something that I found really strange when I was about 18. I had a friend, my first semester at university, who absolutely loved the Grateful Dead. I guess you could call her a deadhead, right? And I remember being shocked completely shocked when she said she couldn't stand the way that the Beatles sang. She couldn't stand their, I think she described them as sort of nasally voices. So it just goes to show you that even a band that's as beloved as the Beatles, where most everyone would say Paul and John's vocals are beautiful, you know, there's still going to be people out there who have a problem <laughs> with, with their voices. So it it's, you know, it's personal taste to a certain extent and what aesthetics people are drawn to in terms of harmonies and melodies and, and the, the timbre or the, you know, the quality of somebody's voice. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There's no accounting for people's taste. Someone sent me a note after reading my alternate history short story, It's Real Life, about the Beatles. <laughs> no, it sets me. I really like the story, which is surprising, since I always liked the Rolling Stones much, much better than the Beatles. And I said, really? And I think you know, the Rolling Stones, there's a lot to like in them. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and they said, and this guy, a man said, yeah, I mean, they're real rockers. The, the Beatles were just some kind of fluff. They sounded good. OK, so, yeah. And this guy was actually younger than me. So, you know, right, right, so right. That, that's why it's hard to figure. Um, uh, what do you so if you had to identify I, this is like an impossible question, but that's why I'll ask it anyway. Sure. The, the single best cover of the Beatles. And, and there are a lot of contenders, you know, a lot of and there are a lot of groups that do covers. For me, it's always been, or ever since I heard it in the first place, I guess, you know, seven or eight years now, uh, the Bangles doing, yes, it is. It's, a, it's on YouTube. It's on a Breakfast with the Beatles video. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Not that it's such a perfect rendition, but they, they get the, the soulful quality of that song perfectly. What, what would be your favorite uh, cover of the Beatles? Well, I have two, one that was recorded in the 60s and one that's more of my generation, I guess you could say, that was recorded in the mid 80s when I was a teenager. So the one from the 60s is Aretha Franklin's version of Eleanor Rigby, which I just couldn't believe that when I first heard it. She does an amazing job of making that song her own, literally by saying, I am Eleanor Rigby. So that, you know, changes the whole dynamic of the song, which is very uh, cool. And it's just fun to listen to. It's very energetic and uplifting. 
And then the one from the 80s that I've always really loved is Susie and the Banshees, Dear Prudence, which was their highest charting hit. I think it went to number three in the British charts, which says something in terms of how, again, she and her band really made that song their own. And it was not a charting hit for the Beatles, obviously, but they really turned it into something new and fresh and interesting. And I love the original Dear Prudence. So for me to say that that is my favorite cover of more of the post 60s era, um, you know, hopefully if people haven't heard it, they'll give it a listen because it is truly magical sounding, I think what she does and her band does with the song. Well, I'll definitely give it a listen. Dear Prudence is also one of my favorite Beatles songs. I mean, John's voice sounds spectacular. The whole, you know, the harmony is wonderful. Everything about that song is great. And, and as you probably know, there was a group called the Five Stair Steps and QB, <laughs> and they had, had a pretty big hit record. And uh, I like their version of it, but it doesn't hold a candle, I thought, to the Beatles you know, version mm. of it, as good as it was. By the way, I, you might remember this, I, and I can't remember what it is. Diana Ross and the Supremes have a cover of one of the Beatles songs. And uh, it's like the- I haven't come across that. Yeah. I'll have to look for it. Yeah, I, I came across it on YouTube, I don't know, about three or four years ago, and I can't remember which one it was. Yeah, I think it, was, it came out around the same time as I don't know, it might have been I've Just Seen a Face, but I think it could have been mm -hmm. a song that was a little earlier. All right, let's uh, wrap up this interview with one of my favorite uh, questions. Uh, and, uh, you know, this will give you a chance to go wherever you want to go. What, what is your next project going mm. to be? Will, will it be another, you know, woman's history of, you know, so for example, I, Bob Dylan is certainly a, a major force in music whose view towards women is uh, worth investigating. As I'm sure you know, his song, Just Like a Woman, which is you know, a brilliant masterpiece of a song, has been, I think, justifiably criticized when you look at the lyrics as a pretty severe put down you know, of at mm -hmm. least a woman. So, I mean, there's a, you know, someone sooner or later is going to write a, a book mm -hmm. about that. But what, what's next on your agenda? Well, very immediately what I'm doing is I'm co-editing a book with three other people, uh, two folks in the States and one in the UK. And it's a history of record stores. So we have chapters coming in from all corners of the world and representing different experiences, whether focusing on the more commercial aspect of the stores or the community aspects of the stores. Uh, we have a chapter coming from Japan, from Brazil, from so many countries around the world. And then in the, the long term, um, you know, I think what you're suggesting, uh, a women's history of Bob Dylan, for instance, would or something of that nature would be great. I don't think I'm the person to write that. I think because of my long history with the Beatles and feeling that I've studied them informally for so many years before, you know, becoming an academic and being able to take on a big project like this, I don't think that's quite in my wheelhouse, although I do 
suspect that I'll be writing other books about rock music and women's experiences. But another thing I'd really like to look at is writing a Gen X memoir, um, fusing cultural history with the things that I've been lucky enough to experience and observe as someone from that generation. Now, you might remember the book um, by Joyce Maynard, um, growing up old in the 60s. Yep. And I think she wrote it as a very young person, right? I think she was still maybe 19 or 20 years old. And that is kind of the blueprint for me in terms of the kind of book I'd like to see, except I'd probably, you know, of course, fuse that more with the socio-historic context and have it be a bit more academic, you know, instead of a straight memoir. But I like that idea because there have been so many books like, not so many, but I would say there are quite a few books like that written by baby boomers, but there hasn't been one written from the Gen X perspective and what that was like, you know, growing up with pop culture from the 60s, but also from our own, you know, generation. And you may have noticed this, maybe not, but it seems in the popular imagination that it's always the baby boomers and the millennials and Gen X kind of gets forgotten about. So that's part of why I think I'd really like to have that be my next book, but we'll see. Nothing is set in stone yet. And of course I'll be writing about the Beatles again, but in what context and what sort of angle I'll be taking on the Beatles, I'm not quite sure yet, but that's something I definitely would like to do in the future. Well, that all sounds great. I mean, here's some advice to someone who's written a lot of books. You, you should plan on writing all of them and <laughs> do, don't get discouraged if, you know, you think you're going to write one book, but you wind up doing something else. Because I found that an idea for a book is, is like money in the bank. So you mm -hmm. have an idea for a book. I've come back to things 5, 10, 15, even 20 years later you know, my science fiction novel, The Plot to Save Socrates, I came up with the idea for it like 10 years before I actually sat down and wrote it. And it's amazing how these ideas still work. By the way, on I think the Record Store book is a brilliant idea. There's a guy on Facebook, in case you don't know him, who I think the store just went out of business the last couple of years, Times Square Record Store or something like that, mm -hmm. and or Times Square Records. It was originally on Times Square. It moved down someplace to Soho. And uh, th they are, you know, they survived a long time. But, you know, if, you, if you're interested in interviewing him, I can, you know, get you uh, his contact information. Um, so listen, this has been an immensely enjoyable interview for me. Anytime I have a chance to talk about the Beatles, uh, <laughs> I always think it's a, it's, a, it's a great opportunity. And, you know, getting back to Peter Jackson's movie, it, it changed my life for the better because I felt mm -hmm. great about the Beatles beforehand, but the movie was is so vivid. It's like mm -hmm. they're in my mind and heart in a way that as much as they were before, they're there more now. Is there anything finally you would like to say before we say goodbye? Well, I just really want to thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. It's great to meet you. And it's been just a pleasure to talk about the Beatles with you, Paul. So yeah, many thanks. All right. Well, same here. You take care. And uh, I'm sure we'll have many other conversations in the future.
Bye bye. Bye. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett. You'll find links through which you can buy her book and all kinds of other good things in the show notes to this episode. Also, if you'd like to see this interview in video, there'll be a link to the YouTube video of this interview as well. And I'll be back here soon with reviews of some more great science fiction on television and with some important people in this world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sound, and do whatever you can to help those brave, heroic people fighting the Russian aggression in Ukraine. The Light on Light Through Podcast. Athens, 2042 AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries.